This message titled Enjoying Grace and Detecting Legalism was given by C.J. Mahaney in the summer of 2000 at Stonely Bible Week, a Christian conference in the U.K., and is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. C.J. Mahaney leads Sovereign Grace Ministries in its mission to establish and support local churches. Please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. I recently came across an article informing me of two unusual events which took place in 1997 that I wasn't aware of. The first is taken from a Minnesota newspaper, a Minnesota newspaper story which told of a fellow who jumped from a plane and his chute did not open properly. Now, I have nightmares. I have never been skydiving. I have no plans to ever go skydiving. But I have had more than a few nightmares over the years of just such a dilemma. Free falling and my chute won't open. Well, for this gentleman, it wasn't a nightmare. It was reality. According to the story, it took more than a minute for him to fall 3,000 feet. So imagine that your chute has not opened properly and you are falling 3,000 feet in a minute. Incredibly, miraculously, he survived. There is another incident from 1997 that I was unaware of. It took place in July of 1997. A gentleman woke up in a morgue refrigerator after 12 hours in a coma. This was in Cairo, Egypt. In total darkness, he felt around and surprised, he discovered he was resting among the dead. He cried out for help, and the paramedic who opened the door collapsed in shock and died. So sorry to report that. Now, obviously, these two men are not going to forget these experiences which took place in 1997. Uh, what I find interesting about the article and the author's main theme is that his title is How Soon We Forget. That's his title. So the theme of the article, the main theme of the article is our tendency to forgetfulness. How soon we forget. Actually, he's writing the article at the beginning of 1998. And though he begins with those two illustrations, two men who will not forget what took place in their lives in 1997, his primary theme is how soon we forget. And, and is this, is this not true? Uh, when I, when I think of, uh, just prior to coming to Stonely, I was talking to someone about a pastor's conference that we were involved in in March. And it was, it was difficult for me to remember specifics and details of a conference that I had the privilege and responsibility to lead in March of this year. Trying, trying to remember that conference in March. It seemed like ancient history. And last year, does not last year seem like ancient history? So it is, it is easy to forget past events, even recent events. But that is not my concern this morning. My concern isn't that we've forgotten some events earlier in the year or some events that have taken place in the previous year. My concern this morning is that some of us have already forgotten last night's message. Actually, my primary concern this morning is that some of us have forgotten the gospel. My concern this morning is that for too many of us, we find it too easy to forget the gospel. It is too easy to forget the gospel and how quickly we forget the gospel. Why, why are we prone? Why are we so apt to so quickly and so easily forget the gospel. Well, a primary reason, I submit to you, a primary reason for our tendency to forget the gospel is, in a word, legalism. A primary reason we are apt or prone to so quickly and so easily forget the gospel is legalism. Legalism is a daily tendency. Legalism is a daily temptation for each one of us. No one is exempt 
from this daily tendency and temptation. And no one present will mature beyond this daily temptation and this tendency. And Paul in Galatians chapter 2 is addressing this daily tendency and temptation. And I want to, from the outset, draw your attention to two verses very relevant to this topic in our lives this morning. So please look carefully with me at Galatians chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 15, although I will be concentrating on verse 16. In verse 15, Paul writes, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know... Now, Paul assumes this knowledge. I'm not going to assume this knowledge amongst us this morning. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law. Do you know that? I'm not going to assume you know that this morning. Or if you do know it, I am going to assume you quickly and easily forget this. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but he is or she is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be Justified. Notice the usage of repetition there in order to reinforce his point. And please, verse 21 as well, Galatians 2, verse 21, Paul writes, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, and we have this startling and stunning statement, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ, died for nothing. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul is addressing this tendency and temptation to legalism. And let me not assume that all present understand legalism. So let us begin with a definition of legalism. This would be my definition of legalism, it has been derived from numerous sources. I don't want you to think there's anything original about this definition. As I've said before, I've never had an original thought, and I don't anticipate ever having an original thought. I'm just a walking quote. That's all I am. <laughs> legalism. Legalism involves seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Legalism involves seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, acceptance by God through my obedience to God. Seeking to achieve forgiveness, justification, and acceptance through my obedience. Legalism, its essence is... In effect, substituting my works for his finished work. Legalism is substituting my works, my good works, supposed good works, for his finished work. In a phrase, legalism is self-atonement. Legalism is self-atonement. It is seeking to atone. Seeking to atone for my Sins. It is my attempt, legalism, is my attempt to atone for my sins. I want to take a few moments here. I want to impress the seriousness of this upon us and its essence as well. I want to read the following quotation. It is one that I have really benefited immeasurably from. It is from a book by Thomas Schreiner. The title of the book is The Law and Its Fulfillment. And Mr. Schreiner writes the following. Legalism, he writes has its origin in self-worship. The origin of legalism, he writes, he argues, I agree, is self-worship. This tendency, this daily tendency, this daily temptation, legalism, he writes that its origin is self-worship. If people are justified through their obedience to the law, then they merit praise honor and glory. Legalism, in other words, means the glory goes to people, 
rather than God. And then finally he writes, the desire to obey the law, though it appears commendable, is actually an insidious way to try to gain recognition before God. I find that a brilliant description and definition of legalism. Legalism is self-atonement. Legalism, he writes, is self-worship. I submit to you, legalism is the height of arrogance. In light of God's holiness and in light of my sinfulness, it is, it is the height of arrogance for me to attempt through my obedience to the law to gain recognition before God. It is the, it is the pinnacle of arrogance, if you will, for me to assume that through my good works, I can morally obligate God to forgive me, to justify me, and to accept me. In his excellent book, The Discipline of Grace, Jerry Bridges writes, It is because we do not realize the utter depravity of the principle of sin that remains in us and stains everything we do, that we entertain any notion of earning God's blessing through our obedience. I do not apologize for lingering on this point and impressing its seriousness upon you. I want to impress its seriousness upon you because I think, I think, I think we refer to legalism, I think we refer to this daily tendency and temptation all too casually. I know all too often I do. See, if on the way in today we had a brief interaction and you sought to draw me out, and in the midst of that communication, I said to you that I have, well, I have a daily tendency, a daily temptation to legalism. I mean, I'm sure because you are caring individuals, you would be concerned and you would seek to encourage me and remind me of the person and finished work of Christ. But your, your concern would not be pronounced. You would not necessarily be alarmed at what I was communicating. But say on the way in, as we were having casual interaction and you were kindly drawing me out, I said to you that, that my, my, my tendency today was to pursue self-atonement. Would you be, would you be possibly a little more alarmed? What if I said to you that, that my purpose today was self-worship? Would that provoke your concern? Would you, would you not then say, Pal, have a seat here and I will find a pastor because if you are attending this event with a purpose of self-worship, then that couldn't be more serious. Well, folks, I submit to you that any reference to legalism, any tendency toward legalism, any temptation of legalism in our lives is self-atonement, an attempt at self-atonement, ultimately for the purpose of self-worship. It couldn't be more serious, nor, listen carefully, nor could it be more offensive to God. In light of His holiness, in light of our sinfulness, and in light of His Son's substitutionary sacrifice, God is not indifferent toward us when we are seeking through our obedience to gain, to morally obligate Him to forgive us to justify us and to accept us. So I hope that any future reference to legalism from this moment on is informed by these definitions, by its essence. Yes, legalism, I believe, is a daily tendency and a daily temptation. I believe legalism is why we can so quickly and so easily forget the gospel. It couldn't be more serious for every attempt, every attempt to achieve forgiveness Forgiveness from God, every attempt to achieve justification before God, every attempt to achieve acceptance by God through my obedience to God is self-atonement ultimately motivated, or its ultimate purpose being self-worship. Now, one more definition of legalism, and this might be my personal favorite. This is from theologian Sinclair Ferguson, and he writes as it relates to legalism the following... The practical importance of justification, he writes, cannot be exaggerated. That's exactly right. The glory of the gospel is that God has declared Christians to be rightly related to him in spite of their sin. But, he writes, listen carefully, but our greatest temptation and mistake 
is to try to smuggle character. Our greatest temptation and mistake, this is his definition of legalism, is to try to smuggle character, smuggle character into his work of grace. How easily we fall into the trap of assuming that we only remain justified so long as there are grounds in our character for justification. And then his final statement, but Paul's teaching is that nothing we do ever contributes to our justification. That is Paul's teaching. That is the clear, unarguable teaching of God's word. Nothing, nothing we ever do. Nothing. Nothing we ever do contributes to our justification. Martin Luther said, the only contribution we make to our justification is the sin God so graciously forgives. So that, that ultimately is the only contribution that we will be making to our justification. The sin that God so graciously forgives. Nothing we do ever contributes to our justification. But, Ferguson writes with great insight, our great, what's our greatest temptation? It's this it's this daily tendency and temptation to try and smuggle character into this work of grace. That's our tendency. That's our temptation. But nothing we do ever contributes to our justification. Listen, two words, two words you need to be familiar with. Justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. And this morning, briefly, I'm going to distinguish between these two words without separating these two words because they are, well, they are inseparable. In other words, God never justifies without also sanctifying. So I'm not separating them, but I do want to distinguish between justification and sanctification, between justifying grace and sanctifying grace. Listen to the distinction. It's critical. If you don't understand the distinction, you will be vulnerable to legalism. Justification is being declared righteous with Christ's righteousness. Justification is a legal act. Justification is a judicial act. Justification is a declaration by God. Justification is a declaration. Justification is being declared righteous. Sanctification is being made righteous. Justification is being declared Sanctification is being made, being conformed to the image of God's Son. Justification is our position before God. Sanctification is our practice before God. Justification is a position. Sanctification is our practice. Justification isn't a practice. Justification is a position. Justification is objective. Justification is objective. Justification is His work for us. Sanctification is subjective. Sanctification is His work within us. Justification is immediate and complete upon conversion. Oh, this is good news. This is, I mean, I, I came happy, but I preach myself happy on this topic as well. This is good news. Enjoy this with me, folks. Justification, this will preach. Justification is immediate and complete upon conversion. Sanctification is a process. Sanctification is a process. Justification is not a process. Justification is not gradual. Justification is not by degrees. Justification is immediate and complete upon conversion. And you will never be more justified than you were at the moment you first trusted the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And, and... And no one in history is more justified than you are at present. Choose an individual from Scripture. Paul, Peter, choose, choose a, a hero from church history. Whoever you have chosen, they are not more justified than you are because justification is a position. Justification is immediate and complete upon conversion. Justification isn't a process. Justification isn't progressive. Justification isn't gradual. Justification isn't by degrees. William Plummer writes, justification is an act. It is not a work or a series of acts. It is not progressive. I love this. The weakest believer and the strongest saint, and both are present here today, the weakest believer and the strongest saint are alike equally justified. Justification admits no degrees, he writes. I 
I love this. A man is either wholly justified or wholly condemned in the sight of God. Those are the only two options available. Wholly justified. Here's the two options. You either receive righteousness as a gift from God and then are wholly justified in the sight of God, or you seek to establish your own righteousness and therefore you are wholly condemned in the sight of God. Now, I'm not minimizing the importance of sanctification, so please, please, please do not misunderstand. Sanctification is the evidence of genuine justification. Sanctification is the objective of justification. It's just that sanctification never becomes the grounds or the basis for our justification. So regardless of how much you mature in this lifetime since your conversion, at no point in this process of maturity will the development of your character ever become a basis or a grounds for your Forgiveness, justification, and acceptance before God. And so we must distinguish between justification and sanctification because, well, nothing we do ever contributes to our justification. But every day, every day, every day, you will be tempted to try to smuggle character into his work of grace. That's legalism. A daily temptation to smuggle character into his work of grace. Now, let's talk about some evidences of legalism. And let's see how much progress we can make here with this particular list that is before me. Some evidences of legalism. If, you, if this tendency is pronounced in your life, then I think these points, I hope these points will be helpful so that you might discern legalism and hopefully put it to death cultivating an awareness and appreciation of the amazing grace of God. So, evidences of legalism. Number one, you are more aware of and affected by your past sins than you are the finished work of Christ. You are more aware of and affected by your past sins than you are the finished work of Christ. Now, since I'm assuming that the overwhelming majority are converted, I'm really addressing those, well, I have encountered those who have difficulty, difficulty recognizing that they have been forgiven of sins prior to conversion, but, but that, would be, that would be abnormal, that would be an aberration. I have had a number of interactions with Christians over the years who have no difficulty receiving forgiveness for all sins committed prior to conversion, but do find difficulty receiving forgiveness from God for sins committed since conversion. So there's a continuing struggle with post-conversion sins. There is either a particular sin or a season of sin they engaged in, and they live, they live consistently aware. Though they've confessed, they've confessed countless times, though they have forsaken, they still live consistently aware, primarily aware of that sin or that season of sin. And if you are more aware of sin, if you are more aware of any season of sin in your past than you are the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, that, that is the evidence of legalism. That is an evidence that legalism is present in your life. I'm going to take a risk here. And I trust no one misunderstands. Because it is not my intention this morning to remind you of past sin or sins. It is certainly not my intention to leave anyone paralyzed by condemnation. The exact opposite is my intention this morning. But work with me and understand my purpose. Momentarily, I want you to think, just momentarily, think of what you believe is the most serious sin you have ever committed. Or series of sins, season of sins. Just think for a moment. Now, here's what I want to say to you. With that sin or sin, sins vividly in your mind, here's what I want to say to you. And this might startle you. I know something you've done that is far more serious. I know something you've done that is far more serious. And I'm going to illustrate this from Rebecca Pippert's book, Hope Has Its Reasons. I have used this illustration before and I use it again without any apology because I, I can't improve on it. I haven't found a single illustration that improves upon this related to the point that I'm attempting to make. She writes the following. 
Several years ago, after I had finished speaking at a conference, a lovely woman came to the platform. She obviously wanted to speak to me, and the moment I turned to her, tears welled up in her eyes. We made our way to a room where we could talk privately, and it was clear from looking at her that she was sensitive but tortured. She sobbed as she told me the following story. Years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, had been youth workers in a large conservative church. They were a well-known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. Everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. A few months before they were to be married, they began having sexual relations. That left them burdened enough with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy. But then she discovered she was pregnant. You can't imagine what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church, she said. To confess that we were preaching one thing and living another would have been intolerable. The congregation was so conservative and had never been touched by any scandal. We felt they wouldn't be able to handle knowing about our situation, nor could we bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision I have ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride beaming in innocence. But do you know what was going through my head as I walked down the aisle? All I could think to myself was, you're a murderer. You're a murderer. You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. You have murdered an innocent baby. At this point, she was sobbing so deeply that she could not speak. As I put my arms around her, a thought came to me very strongly, but I was afraid to say it. I knew that if it was not from God, that it could be very destructive, so I prayed silently for the wisdom to help her. And she continued then, I just can't believe that I could do something so horrible. How can I have murdered an innocent life? How is it possible I could do such a thing? I love my husband. We have four beautiful children. I know the Bible says that God forgives all my sins. I've confessed this a thousand times, and I still feel such shame and sorrow. The thought that haunts me the most is, how could I murder an innocent life? I took a deep breath, and I said what I had been thinking. I don't know why you are so surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, I continued, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent who ever lived. Jesus died for all our sins, past, present, and future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't have to die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. Luther said that we carry his very nails in our pockets. So, if you have done it before, then why couldn't you do it again? She stopped crying. She looked me straight in the eyes and said, You're absolutely right. I have done something even worse than killing my baby. My sin is what drove Jesus to the cross. It doesn't matter that I wasn't there pounding in the nails. I'm still responsible for his death. Do you realize the significance of what you are telling me, Becky? I came to you saying that I had done the worst thing imaginable. And a moment ago, many of you thought that what you had thought of, what you had done, was the worst thing imaginable. I came to you saying I had done the worst thing imaginable, and you tell me I have done something even worse than that. I grimaced because I knew that was true. And then she said, but Becky, if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I had ever imagined... It also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is to kill God's son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, 
even my abortion, not be forgiven. I will never forget the look in her eyes as she sat back in awe and quietly said, talk about amazing grace. This time she wept, not out of sorrow, but from relief and gratitude. And I saw a woman literally transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. And brothers and sisters, you too can be transformed this morning. Transform, transform, no exaggeration, transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. Whatever you was, whatever, whatever, whatever you were thinking of a few minutes ago as the worst, the most serious sin you have committed. I'm here this morning. I'm here this morning to appeal to you. I'm here this morning to convince you that you've done something far worse. I'm here to try to convince you that you are worse than you have ever imagined. And when you can reconcile yourself to that biblical assessment, then you are properly positioned to receive. You are properly positioned to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died and receive forgiveness for, receive forgiveness for your responsibility in executing the only innocent who ever lived and receive forgiveness as well for every other sin you have committed. And to be, in a moment, transformed. No longer seeking through your obedience to somehow compensate for that past sin or season of sins. No longer seeking to satisfy God through your obedience, but instead recognizing it is only ever and always the obedience of another on your behalf that secures your forgiveness, your justification, and your acceptance. Oh, folks, this couldn't be better news. And it really is, it really is arrogance and unbelief to assume that I have been forgiven for killing God's son, but I'm not forgiven for whatever I was thinking about a few moments ago. So my announcement to you this morning is, if this tendency to legalism is evident in your life, if you are more aware of past sin or sins than you are the person and finished work of Christ, may this morning you be transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. Number two, a second evidence of the presence of legalism would be as follows. You are more aware of and reliant upon godly practices than you are the cross. You are more aware of and reliant upon godly, godly practices than you are the cross. You are more aware of and reliant upon godly practices than you are the cross. Again, I run the risk of mis being misunderstood here. I hope I do an effective job so no one misunderstands because I am referring now to a reliance or a dependence on practices that are clearly godly. And by no means in any statement I make as I seek to communicate this point am I critiquing or minimizing the importance of these godly practices. The issue is reliance upon them and dependence upon them for forgiveness, justification, and acceptance before God. Years ago, when I was a little boy, and this will certainly date me, and I'm not sure how many of you have even heard of this, and it's actually not important that you have heard of this, but how many have heard of the Ed Sullivan Show? Does anybody remember the Ed Sullivan Show? Okay, more than, more than I anticipated. Wonderful. Uh, the Ed Sullivan Show was a, a very popular, that would be an understatement, variety show in the United States. Uh, it was where the Beatles were introduced to the States, and Rolling Stones, and, and numerous individuals and acts were introduced to the United States years ago, and it was on Sunday evening, and it was a tradition in the Mahaney household, and it was a tradition across America as well. And, and I can remember uh, numerous shows, but there, there is one, there's one individual that stands out from my history and experience with the Ed Sullivan Show, and that, well, without a doubt, that would be the man, that, the spinning plates guy. Do you know what I'm talking about? This guy would come out, he'd be introduced, he'd come out on the stage, and he'd have this, he'd have a flexible rod, he'd place that flexible rod onto the stage, and he would put a plate on top of the rod, and he would begin to spin the plate. Eventually, this man would fill the entire stage with spinning plates. 
And actually what he would do is he would begin on one side of the stage, spin a plate, and then he would move to the other side of the stage, and he would begin to spin plates on that side as well, establishing plates on either side of the stage. Now, I, I'm, I'm an eight-year-old boy. I am, I am totally, I'm not just fascinated by this, I'm petrified for the guy, because there's no margin of error on the Ed Sullivan show, okay? You, one plate falls, your history. You will never appear again, and you are finished. And, and it, it appears to me that he's not aware as he moves to one side of the stage, establishing a number of spinning plates, that on the opposite side of the stage, plates are wobbling. Plates are wobbling in a pronounced form, and plates are about to fall to the stage and crash, and this guy's career will crash along with it. And so I'm sure, like many others, not just children, but adults alike, I'm drawn into the television. I'm talking to this guy out loud. I'm trying to inform him, as is the audience there that's live, that there are plates on the other side. And of course, he's doing a brilliant job acting as if he's unaware of, of, of why the, uh, the live audience is stirred and then suddenly notices that there is a plate wobbling, gets back and appears every time, just in time, to return that one to this uniform spin. But of course, there are multiple plates that are wobbling. And in the end, there is just this frenzy as he is trying to move from one plate to another as plate after plate after plate after plate after plate is wobbling. Now, while preparing this material, I thought that is a picture of a legalistic Christian. That is a picture of a legalistic Christian. Think of someone who is newly born again. They have, they have experienced the miracle of regeneration. They have repented. They have believed. They have been transformed. And they are unaware of Scripture. There is a biblical illiteracy that obviously characterizes the life of a new convert. And they are particularly unaware of the importance of godly practices. And so they find themselves in a context, and hopefully they find themselves in a local church context where they can be well taught, but, but often they find themselves interacting with somebody who, let's say, lacks wisdom, and rather than rejoicing with them in their experience of conversion and the grace of God transforming their lives, that individual, and that individual can be a very well-meaning individual, seeks to discover, well, are they practicing the spiritual disciplines? And so they will inquire, are, are you reading your Bible regularly? And, and often a new convert will will not be necessarily reading his Bible regularly. Well, no, I, I didn't know we were supposed to read our Bible regularly. Or if they are reading the Bible regularly, they're just reading passages at random. And so this well-meaning individual says, I have a plan. I have a plan where you can be reading the Bible through in an entire year if you devote time to reading the Scriptures every day. And of course, the new convert is thrilled. Whoa, wait a second. You mean next year at this time I could have read the entire Bible if I devote myself to a certain number of chapters every day? Yes, you can. And here's the plan. And so that new Christian puts that flesh flexible rod onto the stage of his life and he begins to spin reading the Bible every day and he is spinning this plate and admiring his daily reading of the Bible and this is doable this is manageable it's just one plate and then and then he has an encounter with another well-meaning Christian who inquires about his study of Scripture. And he says, whoa, check it out. Check it out. And this well-meaning Christian says, that's impressive. I want to encourage you. Now, do you meditate on the Bible daily? And of course, the new Christian is initially perplexed. I read the Bible on a daily basis. And the well-meaning counselor says, no, I asked if you meditated. It's, it's great that you read all these chapters, and that's wonderful. But do you isolate a passage, uh, a verse, a phrase, a word, and, and spend extended time reflecting upon that and receiving from God? And so the well-meaning counselor offers this important godly discipline, and the new Christian says, no, I have not been doing that. And I will begin doing that tomorrow. And so tomorrow morning, with great joy, he wakes up, puts that plate there. He's reading through the Bible. But today, there's another flexible rod placed, and now we're meditating. Whoa! Whoa! We're not just reading. No, we don't just read the Bible. Anybody can read the Bible. No, we meditate on the Bible. We read and we meditate. Read and meditate. And both plates are spinning beautifully and uniformly, and all is well in this man's heart and life, because he is reading 
and he is meditating on the Bible. But then, soon after, he encounters yet another individual, and through casual inquiry, this guy asks him about his prayer list. And he seeks to draw his attention. I read, I meditate, check the plates out. I read, I meditate. This guy says, that's great, that's tremendous, but do you pray? Do you have a prayer list? Hold on, let me get this straight. Your mom is going to hell and you don't pray for your mom on a daily basis? You're not, you're not praying? Do you pray for unsaved family members? Are you praying for unsaved relatives? Are you praying for unsaved neighbors? Are you praying for unsaved co-workers? Hold on. You don't pray? And this individual humbly acknowledges, I mean, I, I pray, but not consistently. And no, I don't have a prayer list. And so the next morning he gets up and he places this and he reads his Bible. And then he spends some time meditating on his Bible. And then a new one goes in. Prayer. Prayer. Now, it begins to get a, begins to be a challenge here because this isn't quite as manageable. It isn't quite as manageable. It's a little difficult to read through all of the chapters and then spend time unhurriedly meditating. And we add to that this endless prayer list that we've now created. So we don't necessarily get it all done in the morning. And this third plate, we can be seen spinning as we're driving to work. Okay, so we're doing it. Okay. Get two going before we leave and one on the way to work. See, then we come to Stonely. And we look and we look at the handbook and there's... There's a couple of hundred thousand seminars to go to. And so we think, okay, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to one on worship. Yes, that's Stuart. Wow, yeah, outstanding. So we're sitting there, and Stuart's teaching on worship. And we're thinking, whoa, wait a second, I, I read the Bible, I meditate on the Bible, I'm uh, trying to pray, but I, I don't worship. Oh, God. Forgive me. I don't worship. All I'm doing is reading the Bible and I'm meditating on the Bible and I'm trying to pray and I'm not worshiping. But I will start tomorrow. And so tomorrow morning we wake up. And we... Now, <laughs> now, here's the challenge. At this point, we're like 80, 82 chapters behind in reading the Bible through in a year. Okay? <laughs> and falling behind more every day. And meditation is hardly peaceful reflection. And then... This prayer list, which just continues to be added to and added to until we're irritated when someone says, would you pray for me? We want to say, no, okay, I I'm not going to pray for you. <laughs> Hard enough time keeping all these plates up. Everybody come and asking me to pray for them. But now, now we're, we're trying to worship as well. And so there's a fourth plate that goes, and this gets a bit difficult. See, your whoops, it's getting difficult to give this illustration as well. And so... It's not difficult to discern these people because when you encounter them, they're often in a hurry and usually they talk and something like this happens. So, it's not a work of the Spirit in their lives. And so, so we've got four plates and then day two and we go to another seminar. And this seminar is on the local church or Terry preaches on the local church and he appropriately challenges us. You selfish charismatics. We think, well, that's me. I'm not, I'm not involved in a local church. We realize this is God's plan. This is God's purpose. I'm not even involved. And so what happens? Oh, a couple of more plates go up. Yeah, local church commitment. And I want to get involved in a small group as well. And then I want to serve God in heaven. Help me because I'm trying to read through the Bible in a year. And okay, that place wobbling. And I'm meditating. Forget it today. And I'm praying. <laughs> God bless everybody. And, I, I, and, I, and I'm worshiping. And, and I'm committed in this local church. And I'm a part of this small group. And yes, and yes, I'm serving. And I'm just running. And oh, God, help me. Gracious. And, and then we go on the third day to a seminar by Lex. And Lex says, it's all about evangelism. When's the last time you shared the gospel? And you're just there. It's been, it's been months. You haven't shared the gospel with anybody. And so, the next morning, you get up and you put 
the evangelism plate back up. And now the stage is filled with plates and you devote the rest of your life to running back and this way and that way and this way. And, and you are just trying to keep all of the plates up. And you know what? Then what happens is every time you're given a book, it's like be given, it's, a, it's a plate. That's how you see it. You just become plate conscious. Somebody says, get the tape. And all you can think of is, it's another plate. Every book's a plate. Every tape's a plate. Sunday morning is another plate. And Stonely is like... A t- yeah. 23 plates, which you'll put up when you get home. Because there's not time to put them all up at Stonely. Now... If you listen carefully to someone like this, there's a sound that they are familiar with. And it's the sound of crashing plates. I appreciate your support. And with each crash, there's the fresh experience condemnation. Now, please, you're great listeners, but listen very carefully. Every practice I described is biblical. Every practice I described is godly. But if you don't understand the difference between justification and sanctification, you will engage in these practices not as a means of grace, but instead as a means of merit. See, too often, see, these, the spiritual disciplines, they're a means by which we receive grace from God. They are not a means by which we merit grace from God. But you can take the means of grace, be they personal or corporate in the context of the local church, And you can practice them as a means of merit. As if, because of your practice, God is morally obligated to forgive you, to justify you, and to accept you. He is not, and he does not. Now, tomorrow morning, read your Bible. That's why why this illustration, it's important for me to make this clarification. I couldn't be more passionately committed to reading my Bible. Well, I'm sure I could be. I am passionately committed to reading my Bible. But when I'm done reading my Bible, I don't merit from God forgiveness, justification, and acceptance. I prepared this morning. I awakened early in order to serve you. I spent time in Scripture reviewing my notes But just prior to coming over here, I got down on my knees in my room and I prayed the following. Had you been there, you would have overheard this prayer. I said, Father, thank you. Thank you for speaking to me this morning as I waited on you, as I worshipped, as I read your word, as I studied your word, and as I reviewed my notes. I received your grace. Thank you for these means of grace. But I want to acknowledge right now that I don't merit your blessing because of my previous practice. And my appeal to you now, yes, I want you to bless me. Bless me, Lord, as I have this privilege to serve your people. But I ask you to bless me only, ever, and always because of the person and finished work of your Son. Because it is only on His merit that I can receive blessing. Because of what He has achieved that I can receive blessing from you. And not because of any contribution that I have made through my practice of the personal or the corporate disciplines. You see, a legalist is more aware of and reliant upon godly practices. This is subtle. Godly practices. This is not not someone living in blatant, obvious disobedience to God, disregard for God's word. No. 
Legalists often can be the ones who appear to be the most zealous. But as Mr. Schreiner said earlier, the attempt through obedience to the law to gain recognition before God is insidious. It is the height of arrogance. You are a legalist if you are more aware of and reliant upon godly practices than you are upon the cross. May you be transformed this morning by a proper understanding of the cross as it relates to the practice of godly disciplines. We have time for just a couple of more. Number three. Number three, evidence of legalism, evidence of trying to smuggle character into his work of grace. Number three, you consistently experience condemnation which is distinct from conviction, and I think I mentioned something about that when I had the privilege to speak yesterday morning. You consistently experience condemnation. Ignorance of justification leaves one vulnerable to condemnation. I, actually, I can, I can assure you that if you don't understand justification, you will experience condemnation. I was speaking at a conference, and it was not far from where I'm located, and so I was driving on what's known as our beltway to this conference. I had... Uh, multiple main sessions. It was a large conference. I'm driving down the Beltway, and I've got a worship tape on in the car. I am alone, and as is my practice, the worship tape was on loud because I like loud music. I'm just a loud person. And there's so much to be loud about in light of the amazing grace of God. And so it's playing loudly. I'm singing uh, loudly off-key, and I'm, I'm reflecting upon my message and preparing for the privilege of addressing uh, this uh, conference. And all of a sudden, abruptly, from the left lane, I was in the middle lane, there were three lanes, the car on the left moves, swerves, cuts me off. I mean, it was inches. So we are traveling along somewhere between 65 and 70 miles an hour, and he moves in front of me, and and there, there are only inches to spare. And I go from this, I'm, I'm singing... I'm meditating, I'm reflecting, I'm rejoicing, and the next word out of my mouth as he moves is, idiot. Now that's just happened just like that. You know, Lord, I lift your name on high, idiot. That, that's just exactly how it happened. Incredible. Going to a conference, worship music, reflecting on a message, idiot. Now, I, I immediately experienced condemnation. What kind of example are you some kind of example of road rage i mean what what is up have you have you never made a driving mistake and so i'm feeling this condemnation i think oh lord i know i know your word says turn the other bumper i didn't turn the other bumper i and i, I thought for a moment i'll catch up to the guy and wave to him i will i will establish but he was motoring along, was well in front of me, and due to traffic configuration, I wasn't able to catch up to him. So now I'm left, and at this point I'm actually driving uh, under the speed limit in the far right lane, feeling totally condemned for this, this, this outburst. And uh, listen, now, and this is what I begin to do. I begin to think, okay, now what can I do? <laughs> well, I do have a choice, don't I? See, I can either repent of my sin and receive forgiveness and receive righteousness as a gift from God, or I can seek to establish my own righteousness. And for a few moments, that's exactly what I did. I said, okay, uh, when I arrive, I will pray. Yep, that's right, an extended time of prayer. Uh, not only that, I will fast. That's right. I will fast. I will not only fast food, I will fast, I'll fast ESPN. I will, I will fast, I will pray, and I will fast. And it's as if while I'm saying these things, it's as if I imagine God saying, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. No. You need to do more. And of course, God, that isn't the posture of God's heart toward me at all. So prior to arriving, I, I just recognized how arrogant it was of me to assume that I could merit God's blessing through my obedience to him. Listen, until you've resolved the guilt of sin biblically, you'll never be able to weaken the power of sin in your life. There, there is an order. There is a sequence. How do you resolve the guilt of sin? You receive the forgiveness that was achieved on the cross 
by the substitutionary sacrifice of His Son. And if you don't receive forgiveness because of the cross, you are in effect setting aside the grace of God and declaring that Christ died for nothing. It's not that you think His death was unnecessary, but in effect it was insufficient. Helpful, but not sufficient. I must contribute as well. So if you find yourself consistently experiencing condemnation, perhaps it's because you're trying to resolve condemnation by establishing your own righteousness before God. Not only will that not resolve condemnation, if it does resolve condemnation, what it will create in your life is self-righteousness. You'll, be, you'll admire the plates you are spinning. And you'll compare your spinning plates favorably to others. You will be self-righteous. Evidence of legalism, you consistently experience condemnation. One more, one more, you lack joy. You lack joy. You lack joy. That can be an evidence of legalism. Because we are commanded to serve the Lord with what? With gladness. It's not sufficient to serve Him. We are commanded to serve Him with gladness. For the Lord to be satisfied, for the Lord to be glorified, it must be done. Service must be accompanied by gladness. Where do we receive joy? Well, you receive joy from the wells of salvation. Too many of us are drawing from the wells of personal performance. Where you draw from the wells of personal performance, you will either consistently experience condemnation or cultivate self-righteousness. Where you are drawing from the wells of salvation, you will undeniably, inevitably be joyful. What's the remedy? What's the remedy to legalism? Briefly, the remedy, the remedy is the cross. That's the remedy. To quote Mr. Ferguson once more, he says, the reason we lack an assurance of his grace is because we fail to focus on that spot where he has revealed it. Why do we lack assurance? If you're here this morning and you say, I lack an assurance of his grace. It's inconsistent. I'm not consistently assured of his grace. Why is that? Well, Mr. Ferguson would say, often, normally, it's because we fail to focus on that spot where he revealed it. Let's do a little audience participation right now. What do you think is the most common form of car accident in the United States of America? Would you like to guess? There is, without a doubt, a most common form of car accident. Anybody want to play the game? Human error. That, sir, that was a very safe yes. Yes. Most accidents, in my experience, are human error. Yes. But this is a little more specific. But thank you for playing. Thank you so much, really. Actually, really, you've been a great audience. Thank you for playing. Let me just tell you, since, since we only have a few minutes left, and I don't want to keep you, knowing you have children and other responsibilities. Most common form, you, we have what's called yield signs. I like yours better. Give way. I like that. I, yield just sounds so authoritative to me. Yield. Hey, yield. Just driving the, uh, two days ago. Give way. Excuse me. Give way. I just like that. It's so polite. It's, it's England. I love you. I love this country. I love everything about this country. Oh, sure. Uh, give way. Yes, give way. So what happens in America is when people come to yield signs, they, you'll be behind a car at a yield sign. And so you're observing the car in front of you and that car begins to move. And so you look back to your left, wanting to make sure that there are no cars coming so that it's safe for you to go. But then what you do, it's the most common form of car accident, you don't turn back to discover whether or not that car actually continued. You assume, yes, he was moving last I saw. <laughs> All appears to be clear. And so you begin to move and you, well, you develop a new friendship. That's what happens. You meet a, you, you meet a new friend. What's, see, you have this happen a few times, you, you, you learn wisdom. You just study that car and you say, I'm not even looking back. I'm going to wait until he disappears over the horizon before I then look back. And even then, I'm going to look back to see if he's backed up and reappeared again because it is so easy for this to happen. What, what's the point? Well, the point is you fail to focus on the right spot. Where's the right spot? The right spot is his back bumper. Study his back bumper. Keep your eye on his back bumper until you can no longer see his back bumper and then and only then move. What's the, what's, what's the, what's, what's the issue for the Christian? Survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. 
focus on that spot. That is the spot where we are to focus. One more quote by Mr. Ferguson. It is two sentences, but I think it is brilliant. He says that the evangelical orientation is inward and subjective. His counsel is, we are far better at looking inward than we are at looking outward. That's true. A legalist is far better at looking inward than looking outward. And then he writes, we need to expend our energies admiring, exploring, expositing, and extolling Jesus Christ. Oh, let me just begin by saying, I wish I had said that. That is outstanding. We need to expend our energies. Where do you expend your energies? Too many of us expend our energies in internal examination. There's a place for it. It's just not primarily where we're to be expending our energies. Where are we to be expending our energies? We are to be expending our energies admiring, exploring, expositing, and extolling Jesus Christ. That's what we're to be doing. We are to be looking outward. We are to be looking upward. We are to be following the counsel of Robert Murray McShane. Take ten looks at Christ for every one look at yourself. That's what we are to be doing. Jerry Bridges writes the following statement, and I want to encourage you. I want to do more than encourage you. I want to plead with you. I want to appeal to you. I want to beg you to please buy this book, okay? When this session is over, do not even pick up your children first. Go and buy this book, okay? Please, this is an outstanding book, and it's the first three chapters are worth the entire cost of the book, although I'd recommend the other section as well. But he has a whole chapter on how to preach the gospel to yourself every day. He is addressing this tendency to so quickly and so easily forget the gospel. It's called The Discipline of Grace. It's by Jerry Bridges. I made sure ahead of time that there were 500,000 copies in the bookstore, because I want you each to have one. So please buy that. Mr. Bridges says the following. Listen, when we pray to God for his blessing... Oh, I love this. And I'm so grateful. Listen, when we pray to God for his blessing, he does not examine our performance to see if we are worthy. This is not license here. Mr. Bridges is is by no means advocating that one can be living in a, a blatant disregard for God's word and God's will and yet expect to be blessed of God. He's, he's talking about a sincerely converted individual who desires to do God's will, but who still encounters remaining sin prior to receiving one day a glorified body. And so he says, when we pray to God for his blessings this morning, I prayed to God. I said, Lord, please bless me this morning. Now, how comforting was it to know that God wasn't there examining my performance to see if I was worthy of blessings? Do you know why? Because if he examined my performance for the basis to determine whether I was worthy of blessing, there would be no blessing for me today. There would be no blessing. But he didn't examine my performance. You know what he did? He looked to see if I was trusting in the merit of his son as my only hope for securing his blessing. And I think he knows I am. Lord, I trust not my merit, not my obedience, not my Bible study, not my prayer, not my fasting, not my worship, not my local church involvement, not my evangelism. I trust in the merit of your son. I look outward. I look upward. I trust your son. B.B. Warfield said it is the conviction that there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. My historical hero, Charles Spurgeon, let's allow him to have the last word. One might better try to sail the Atlantic in a paper boat than to get to heaven by good works. Let's pray together. Well, Father, I thank you for this privilege, and I thank you for the gospel, and I thank you for teachable friends who desire to learn and grow. Lord, I would ask that each of us would be more discerning of legalism, its essence, its seriousness, and Lord, I think I can safely assume that the majority of us have had this tendency over the last 24 hours. Therefore, it is appropriate for us to pause now and acknowledge to you that we have been arrogant. We have been arrogant in assuming, we have been arrogant in attempting to merit your blessing through our obedience. We have sought to achieve 
forgiveness, justification, and acceptance by our obedience to you. We have attempted to morally obligate you to bless us, and we acknowledge that this morning is the height of arrogance, and we appeal to you for forgiveness, and we receive your forgiveness this morning, Lord, because now we focus our attention not within, but we focus our attention outward and upward, and we acknowledge this morning that before the throne of God above, there appears the Son of God on our behalf, And his plea for us is a perfect plea in light of his perfect obedience and his perfect substitutionary sacrifice which satisfied your wrath and secured our salvation and justification. Now, Lord, I pray for each one here today that we might expend our energies not inward today, but outward. That we might expend our energies today admiring, admiring and expositing and extolling the Son of God. And as a result, we would be free from legalism, we would be filled with joy, we would bring you pleasure, and we would glorify you. Oh Lord, grant this for your Son's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by C.J. Mahaney titled, Enjoying Grace and Detecting Legalism. This audio message is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.SovereignGraceMinistries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.